Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Ray Penny with New Jersey School Board Association. Welcome to our podcast program, Conversations on New Jersey Education. Uh, this is a special edition. We, we're doing a series on school law issues during the pandemic. Uh, today, we'll be focusing on special education issues, uh, which are one of the bigger challenges that I think school districts are facing. Uh, if you want to call in, you can. Number's one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four, and press number one, and we can uh, make sure you get up there on the switchboard, or you can uh, call, I mean, uh, log into our chat room feature on Blog Talk Radio. You do have to log in with Blog Talk Radio, but if you put a name in the chat room, uh, uh, we will make sure we get it onto our guest today. Um, first of all, I'd like to uh, uh, welcome Amy Elko from the law firm of uh, Cooper Levinson. Welcome, Amy. How are you? I'm great, Ray. How are you? Good. Uh, just before we get started on this important topic, could you just tell us a, a, a little bit about your firm, where your firm is, and uh, uh, how long you've been in education? Sure. So I work for Cooper Levinson. We are a firm that has offices throughout the country. We have over 75 attorneys, and we have a wide variety of specialties and expertise that we bring to the practice of law. We've been around since 1957, so we've celebrated our 60th anniversary, which was exciting. And particularly, wow. we, I work for the education law practice, and it's, he, it's um, head by Chair Will Donio. And what we do is we focus on representing school boards. And we represent school boards throughout the state of New Jersey from up north down to the south. And I'm primarily based out of the Atlantic City office. Okay. And, uh, Amy, this topic is, I think, so important, uh, the special education, because I think uh, the minute all this happened back in the late uh, middle of March, uh, I think the biggest worry a lot of districts had was um, the special education students, because uh, that's a difficult thing to do with social distancing protocols and uh, doing it virtually. So um, let's start going discussing some of this. Well, first of all, how do you do a virtual IEP meetings? What are some things that we should be aware of as we go into that? Because most of the IEP meetings have been virtual. So that's a great question. And one of the first things you have to think about if you're doing a virtual IEP meeting is what access to technology does the parent or guardian actually have? Are they able to participate using their cell phone? Do they have a laptop, a Chromebook? What device do they have? Um, you find out sometimes that in you're talking about a household that has multiple students, they might not all have a laptop or an electronic device. So maybe the students are using that device for education and the parents are not able to participate using an electronic device. So when you go ahead and say we're going to have a virtual meeting, I think it's important to reach out to the parents to see what they have and what they're able to utilize. If you think about it, prior to the pandemic, schools were able to have meetings where parents would call in and participate virtually or where they would video conference in. So what has happened with COVID-19 is that now instead of it just being a parent 
oftentimes you're finding a whole child study team participating virtually, whether it's in um, a Zoom, a Meet, a WebEx, whatever type of platform that the school district is utilizing, and it allows all of the members to participate. And sometimes it even allows greater participation. And what I mean by that is if somebody is maybe a contracted service provider and not a full-time district employee, sometimes it's much easier to participate in an IEP meeting if they don't have to actually drive to the district, but instead can participate virtually. So one of the things I'm finding is that you actually have more participation because it's easier for most people to just hop on a meeting for a short period of time than actually drive to a location and then attend a meeting. So and just, uh, even though – go ahead. Uh, I just can say uh, just one little quick thing that came to my mind. If uh, you need something signed uh, at the end of this for an agreement, how do you work that virtually? Can you do an electronic signature or do you have to use the mail? So what most people are doing are emailing documents to parents. If parents are capable of signing them and scanning them in, um, you can accept that and then just send in the original with the child or plop it in the mail. Either one is okay. acceptable. And when you talk about these meetings, even though most districts are back in person in some fashion, although there are a handful of districts that are still completely virtual, but the ones that are back in a hybrid fashion or a full-time fashion tend to still have these virtual IEP meetings. And I think one, it's to limit COVID, but two, it really assists districts in having efficient meetings. So again, just some quick tips. You wanna make sure the parent has the proper platform. You wanna make sure all the parties are included. And extremely important is to make sure that everybody on the district side is trained in what we call netiquette. And that means, are they aware of background noises? Are they aware of muting themselves if they're going to say something or talk to somebody else? So you wanna make sure all of your district staff have been appropriately trained in what your district's requirements for good netiquette is. Mm. Finally, for an, a virtual IEP meeting, you wanna make sure that you handle it just like a regular meeting. So just because it's virtual doesn't mean you don't go through all the normal processes. You don't introduce everybody. You want to make sure you go through the evaluations, ask questions, and you really engage in that interactive process with the parents. Ray, as you can imagine, because we are relying on technology, that means that once in a while you might have a little technology blip. You could have an um, outage with your Internet. You could have some... Um, problems seeing somebody or hearing somebody. So that is something you also have to take into consideration and make allowances for. Hmm. Now, uh, it's always been important, uh, the, the communication between the district and the parents. Um, I think it's even more important now that you continue that communication. Are there any tips on that communication with parents even after the IEP meeting and as you're progressing with your, the services for the student? Absolutely. Communication is key. And oftentimes when you are having a challenging situation with a student, the communication or the lack thereof often takes the direction of where the parent is going to be. So what do I mean by that? 
if you have a parent that is going through a difficult situation with their child, they're unhappy with the way the district may be handling some things, if a district does not proactively communicate with the parent, it's more likely that the parent is going to then get more frustrated, and that's often when things lead to litigation. It's very important to communicate with the parent, especially when we're talking about special education um, students and their needs. And one of the things a district has to remember is if that communication is over the telephone, which a lot of times it is, they need to always follow it up with documentation, whether that's in a communication log in their IEP system, whether it's an email to the parent confirming what was discussed. But documentation is, documentation is always key when we're talking about communication. It's key for the district so you have a clear outline of what was done, what was communicated, and what was said. And it's important for the parent because they can also see what was expressed verbally in case they maybe misheard something or disagree with something. I also think when we're talking about the virtual learning and hybrid learning environment, teachers, case managers, people are getting questions that they've never had before because we've not had to go through this learning environment before. So sometimes we don't have all the answers. My advice to all of our school district employees and our boards of education is to answer the questions the parents have, knowing that the answer might not be perfect, but no answer is the worst answer. <laughs> uh, I, I just hope people just heard what Amy had said about that because I always think that communication and documentation are so important. And that's, that doesn't even go, that's not just because we're in a pandemic and doing this all virtually. That's still, that was always important, uh, particularly in special education. Um, I think the, the thing that really brought people down, not down, the, the thing that really uh, took people, had, make them take a step back was when we had to go to virtual learning uh, or even do now do some uh, in-person with social distancing, that's much harder to do in special education where it was a little bit more hands-on. Uh, any advice in that area? Oh, absolutely. So bringing in a special education program it, with the road back to school guidance, the executive order 175 restrictions is very challenging. And I appreciate that every board of education in the state of New Jersey is going through those same challenges as to how do we do this? How do we protect our students, protect our staff members, and make sure that our school community is getting what they deserve when we talk about educating children? So one of the most important things is to make sure that your district has a policy on what is required for virtual and in-person learning. And that includes what PPE, what personal protective equipment is the district providing? And are we making sure that the staff members have access to the equipment? When we're talking about special education students, and specifically if we're talking about self-contained students, where you typically have a limited number of students in a classroom, often with a teacher, some paraprofessionals, other adults in the room, it's going to be difficult to social distance. 
just by the very nature of the disabilities of the students and of the makeup of the classroom. So it's very important for the district to make sure that they've provided the appropriate PPE to their staff and to also ensure that these staff members are utilizing the PPE. One of the questions and the complaints that we are starting to see is yes, districts have purchased PPE, but maybe not everybody is wearing all of the items that have been purchased. So I think it's important when we talk about social distancing as a board and as a district to make sure that we are utilizing what our policy requires and that we're following up to make sure that we're utilizing it. Oftentimes in these self-contained classrooms, you'll have um, some type of plastic barriers for the students to help with social distancing. In addition, you'll have your staff members that oftentimes have gloves, face shields, face masks. Sometimes those staff members are in scrubs or gowns. So a variety of levels of protection. One of the key pieces that we're finding is, especially for the younger special education students in the self-contained classrooms, it is difficult to wear a mask. So one of the things your district should be looking at is if you have students that are having challenges with wearing masks, what plans do you have in place? Do you have a program to help teach them tolerance to wearing the mask? Do you have communication? We talked about that a minute ago. Key communication with the parent to express the need for the child to wear a mask and to practice at home and really document those items because when you have the students in school you need to make sure they're protected as well as the staff members are protected um i just want to follow up when you talked about communication with the parents about the mask and other things um probably most likely the students are not in their self-contained classroom as often as they were in the past they may be in but maybe not five days a week is it important then to, as a best practice, to kind of uh, help the parents or train the parents on some of the issues that are going on, more so than you had in the past because the, the students are home? Yes, Ray. We've actually suggested not only training for parents um, on an individual basis, but also promoting district group training. So, for example, if you have a BCBA on staff, or school psychologists on staff to certainly suggest maybe having some virtual meetings with parents to talk about strategies, best practices, because those parents are home and obviously most of them do not have that same level of training that your specialists do in school and that your teachers have. So certainly a wonderful way to create some positive communication is to have some parents' virtual nights. One of the nice things about uh, the ability to have these virtual meetings is that it's much easier to schedule them with parents now that you have the flexibility to just hop on a Zoom or a Meet and have a meeting and discuss concerns and issues in a proactive manner. And I also just wanted to uh, touch on one other thing you just said, which was, you know, everybody's not in all the time. One of the things that we're finding is some districts are really trying to focus on their special education needs students. So where maybe you have an AB day, so you have a hybrid schedule and 
kids in group A come in Monday, Tuesday, kids in group B come in Thursday, Friday, everybody's remote on Wednesday, some of those districts are creating a group C, and that is your self-contained special education students that are coming in four or five days a week because the district is recognizing that it is a challenge and challenging to provide them with the level of services necessary in a virtual setting. I was, that was going to be my next question because I have heard that uh, no matter what uh, decision they made, whether it's a hybrid or virtual, they are trying – most districts, at least that I can see, are trying to get uh, the special ed students in a little bit more often than some of the other students uh, because they feel it's that important. Uh, so you're seeing the same thing then. So, right, we're seeing the same thing, although what's interesting is it depends on the type of special education program. So we've been talking a lot about uh, self-contained students, but there is a secondary issue, which is schools are focusing on those special education self-contained students, but what about your pull-out resource students or your right. students that are in an LLD classroom or an inclusion setting? So we are seeing a lot of creative solutions that districts are doing to assist those special education students as well, so they are benefiting from additional time in school. Now, that might not be four or five days a week. It could be an additional one day a week, but it is additional time in class. And I think that's important for the district to document and show that they are trying to work with all of their special education population and not just one particular group over another. Right. And I, I did hear, uh, and I, it was up north, that some parents were concerned that their student, if they were going in every day, would be identified as special ed, and they didn't want to have that. I don't know if that's ha something that you've seen, so you have to be careful of not uh, making sure that the kid is identified as special education. Absolutely. So, yes, that's certainly a concern, and that's something to think about as well. And the nice thing about, if there is a nice thing, about everything that's going on right now is a parent at any time can say, listen, I want my child to have a completely virtual learning experience. And that is provided for in the guidance. That's an option that all districts have to provide. And even if a parent chooses hybrid first, and they decide that they're just uncomfortable with it, they can certainly choose to go back to an all-virtual setting, and the guidance does allow for that. I mm -hmm. also wanted to touch upon, um, in your previous question, I forgot to bring this up, um, physical therapy, occupational yep. therapy, when we're talking about hybrid and virtual, the guidance does say, even if you're a parent that chooses full virtual, that you can request some of the services in person. So you could be a parent that says, I want my child in a full virtual educational program, but I would like related services in person in the district. So there are options for that, as you touched upon earlier. In the spring, we could not do those services remotely. Um, now that law has changed, you can do services like physical therapy, occupational therapy remotely, but if a parent is choosing to come into the district to do so, even if they're full virtual, they can. Okay. And I guess it leads to another point. 
um, we were in one place in uh, March and April and May. Now we're in a different place in September, and we're all trying to figure out where we're going to be, where the students are. What about the, the thing that kind of starts the whole thing, assessing where a student is? Because in many cases, we didn't know – we haven't really seen the student in person uh, for a long time. So any advice on assessing the student? Yes, um, absolutely. Districts need to be using benchmark assessments, different types of tools that they have to determine where the student is now and where they were the last time they saw them. It's really important to see, did they make progress during the pandemic? Did they make progress in the spring and in the summer over ESY if they went to ESY? Or no, are they not making progress? And if they're not making progress, then I think we have to go ahead and say, what can we do to possibly revise the student's program to assist them in making progress um, with their IEP? Uh, and as we move forward, uh, what happens if a parent wants uh, a service that kind of violates social distancing protocols and kind of puts the district in a, a bind? How do they communicate with the parent on that? So that's a great question, and it's actually a question that we get a lot. What happens if, for example, the parents want somebody to come to their house or do something that violates the district's policies and procedures on social distancing, on the road back? And what we are suggesting is to meet, discuss the restrictions, discuss the policies, um, explain that those policies and procedures uh, came from not only guidance from the state of New Jersey, but also typically in collaboration from the school doctor and other professionals. And that at this time, we can't do X, Y, or Z, whatever that may be. That being said, I always feel like when you come to a meeting, you should have some type of solution to offer a parent. So even though you might not be able to offer them what they want, my suggestion would be to come up with a solution to give them something different than what they have now to show that you are listening and you are working with them and you understand that even though you might not be able to do exactly what the parent wants, you're still demonstrating that you're working with the parent to provide change. And at the end of the day, when it comes to special education, special education is about a free appropriate public education. And a lot of times there's a misconception that appropriate means the best. And that's honestly not true. When it talks about appropriate, it means what's appropriate for that individual student. And you have to take a variety of factors into that decision. And sometimes that decision is not what parents want. And that's definitely a difficult conversation to have, but it's a conversation you have to have and you have to document. Again, back to that key word, document, document. You have to document those decisions that you're making and the reasons why you're making those decisions. Mm -hmm. Now, would that um, – say there's something in the IEP that is almost impossible to give right now. Uh, maybe they close all the schools like they did in May and everything's virtual. How do you uh, protect yourself if it's just virtual – when the IEP tells you to do something in person? So one of the things you do is you need to follow the IEP to the greatest extent practicable. 
So that means that if you physically are unable to be in school because you've either been shut down from the governor, from the Department of Health, um, then you can't open because you'd be going against one of those orders. So my advice is to make sure you reach out to the parent, you explain this is how you're going to provide this service, that you will be following up when you're back in person to see how you did it virtually and to make sure progress was made and to determine if you need to provide any additional uh, compensatory services for the student to make up for whatever they missed. A lot of times if you can come up with something virtual and the student is getting that service in a different way, you can ask the parent to amend the IEP to reflect that new change. Or if the parent is unwilling to amend the IEP, you could certainly hold an IEP meeting um, to discuss that change as well. But while we were closed, and if we're closed again, schools must follow the IEP to the greatest extent practicable. And if they can't follow the IEP, you really need to document all of the reasons why and all the different ways you're showing on the other things you did to comply in alternative ways. Okay. Uh, you know, as we're going through this, you, you, you provide some really good information. Um, and it, it's a difficult. I think everyone in, uh, uh, was very concerned with the special ed population because it happens pretty much overnight. Uh, and we're all trying to learn at the same time. Are there any best practices? You, you talked about a couple of them in terms of the communication. Uh, any other best practices that uh, you have seen with a lot of the districts you work? So, yes. I mean, some of the great best practices are having those parent meetings, making sure that just because you're not in person on a full-time basis or in person at all right now, depending on your individual district's uh, needs, that you still have your parent meetings, that you still reach out to the parents and communicate what's going on. I also think that it's important for the case managers to really reach out to their students and their students' parents to say, you know, what's working, what's not working? Do you need assistance? A lot of times, you know, parents and students are trying to navigate the virtual world, trying to navigate the hybrid world, and then trying to figure everything out with related services and everything else that they need. So I think those check-ins with them are extremely important. I also think it's important to talk about the IEP and what's making sense and what's not making sense. So when you're having these IEP meetings that are required annually, that you're sitting down with the parents in that virtual setting and talking about what works and what doesn't work. There are special education students that just might not have the capability to sit and attend to a computer for a few hours at a time. So that might mean that a district might have to create manipulative baskets and different paper and different um, lessons for the students to get in an alternative means. So one of the key points is one size doesn't fit all. And when you're talking about special ed, you're always talking about an individualized program. So it's important to have those communications with the parents to determine, okay, if they just can't sit at a computer, what can we do so they're getting a meaningful benefit to their education in the school district? So that is also very key. Okay. And I, I would imagine it would be important for people from across districts to talk to each other about how they're handling some situations because maybe people can learn so from each other. 
So one of the great things that we're doing at Cooper Levinson is we are doing these roundtable discussions where we bring all of our clients together. And we don't talk about individual cases, but we talk about best practices. So people throughout the state in different counties can hear, oh, well, in this county, we're doing this. In this county, we're doing that. And it's really great to collaborate with each other. So I would encourage everybody in school boards, now that you're virtual, to listen on these county meetings to hear what other counties are doing. So often we're in our bubble in our own county and only hear what's going on there. And it's really refreshing to say, oh, wow, that's what they're doing in Ocean County or in Cape May County, just to kind of get a different perspective about what is going on. And I think that we all can benefit from other people's knowledge and suggestions. And it's really important to know, okay, this worked here, this didn't work, and this is why it didn't work. You might be contemplating something, and you go ahead and you're like, yeah, we really want to try it, and it's nice to know that somebody else tried it and it did work or it didn't work. So that communication hmm. is key across districts. Okay, we're coming to the end of our uh, podcast. I'd like to thank you. I mean, you gave us a lot to to think about, and if you if you take anything away, communication is pretty important uh, with parents and with each other uh, throughout this whole uh, pandemic. Uh, it always was important, but it's probably even more important now. So, Amy, I'd like to thank you for joining me on this program, and I hope everyone found it informative. Thank you so much, Ray, and I really appreciate it, and I hope everyone has a wonderful day. Okay. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you. <laughs>